Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, this is the China Sports Insider Podcast on the Seneca Podcast Network. My name is Hike Ballion, and I am with the China Sports Insider, Mark Dreyer. This is our sixth podcast together, but our first on sub-China, and we are excited to be here. If you're listening to this, you're probably listening on the Seneca podcast, which we've taken over for this week only. And as you probably just heard on Seneca, you can find the podcast right now. Just head over to subchina.com slash podcast, or search for China Sports Insider Podcast on your favorite podcast player. This week, Fewer than 100 days to go to the Beijing Games. It's almost here. The saga of the Chinese men's ice hockey team. And we talked to Dan Wilkin. He's national sports columnist for USA Today. He's on to talk about IOC's playbook. Mark, that's a lot of me talking. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. Yeah, it's crazy that it's it's fewer than 100 days. I mean, first of all, Tokyo's just finished. And of course, with the delay there, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of off cycle for an Olympics. And... It's so many years of build-up, but because of COVID, everything's still, still up in the air. We still don't really know about the ticketing arrangements. They've said that residents of China can can go. Now, we're assuming, we're, we're kind of hoping slash assuming that that means foreign residents as well are included there because it does seem the language is sort of carefully written that way. But uh, ticketing details have not yet been released. And, you know, we're, we're three months away. The sponsors have no idea what they can do. Uh, just everything that would have been uh, at, a, at a normal Olympics uh, that would have been planned literally years ahead of time is still to be finalized. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting, but it's, it's still pretty uncertain. It's the uncertainty that makes it exciting, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> partly, yeah. <laughs> um, so the venues are ready. We know that. And they have been for a while. And all the supporting infrastructure is ready now. And, and finally, over the last few weeks, we've had all these foreign athletes coming into Beijing for these test events. So, so what's been happening? So before any Olympics, they have these official Olympic test events. Now, typically these are done, these are held more than a year ahead of an Olympics. And this is for, for everyone's benefit. So this is the broadcasters can can check the cameras are positioned in the right spot. All the, the venue organizers and the people who will be operating those venues can check that everything works the way it's supposed to. The athletes can also get accustomed to venues and acclimatized. And that's very important on things like uh, the sliding track, which is skeleton, bobsled, luge, uh, etc. So everyone can basically have a dry run through. Now, 
a lot of these test events were uh, cancelled or postponed last winter season. They held some at the beginning of, of 2021, uh, towards the tail end of the last winter. And then the remaining ones have been held just were being held at the moment over the last few weeks in in Beijing and, and around at the venue. So it's basically just just ticking the boxes there to make sure that they have a dry run through of every single venue uh, ahead of the Olympics themselves. So and as you mentioned, the uh, IBSF, the International Bobsleigh and Skeleton Federation, they had a, they had their test event here. You know, and I've been trying to book an athlete to talk about their experiences here, but I, I haven't had any luck. Although there might be a certain champion bobsledder who who might come on sometime soon. Um, I'm just sort of teasing that. <laughs> a few skeleton athletes did give a press conference after their events, and they seem to be blown away by, by the venue in, in Yanqing. Well, I think the one thing we knew about China hosting another Olympics, obviously it's second, but it's first Winter Olympics, is that all the venues would be spectacular. And China can hold a very, very good event. It's proven that not just the Olympics, but a a whole ton of, of, of international sporting events and otherwise as well. So that comes as no surprise. I think what what's We've talked about it before on, on the podcast, Haig, but it's so important for these sliding sports. When you're going at, at, at extreme speeds, you know, 70, 80 and upwards miles an hour down these tracks, which which are new to it, to a lot of this is a brand new track, the, the sliding track. It's imperative that the athletes get a chance to, to try it out. It's not just rocking up a week before the competition and, and hoping for the best. I mean, I, I was in Vancouver in 2010 and, we, and we've talked about this before, but Two days before the Olympics were set to start, there was a, a, a Georgian athlete who actually died. He, he flipped off the track and crashed into one of the, 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 the metal stanchions. I mean, it was, it was just absolutely horrific. And this can happen at, at, on these sliding tracks. Like those, that's the danger involved in this sport. So that, uh, in particular, of all the test events, that was the one that I think a lot of people were, were, were watching most closely because it hadn't happened yet and time was running out. Uh, and it wasn't just a case of, of cancelling, you know, an ice skating performance where, where, to be honest, ice is ice all over the world. Yes, the venue is, is, is slightly different, but it doesn't really affect the athletes. And I think, you know, just to get the dry run through of, of the bubbles or what they're, they're terming the closed loop management, trying that out, uh, um, athletes basically coming into China for the first time since the pandemic started without having to do quarantine. This is massively significant because uh, so many events have been cancelled over the last 18 months. This is the first time that, that, that people have come in and gone straight into these bubbles. And that, of course, is what exactly what they'll be doing come Olympics time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So at that press conference, uh, which was given by Hannah Nysa from Germany, Marcus Wyatt from Great Britain, and Axel Jung also from Germany, they they were talking about how there was some freedom of movement within the bubble, and they actually also had a chance to go to the Great Wall. Uh, so there was a little bit of, of sightseeing, but I think mostly it's going to be, you know, they get to the bubble, they do their events, they, they, they train, and then they leave. Okay, on to the next story. The IOC came out with its long-awaited playbook, which gives us some insight on how the games are going to be run this year. Uh, we, we were talking a bit later with Dan Wilkin of USA Today about this, but but before we do, was there anything, Mark, that surprised you at all? Well, for people who are perhaps familiar with what exactly this is, this is a this is a COVID-related document. There's actually two documents, one for the athletes and one for everyone else in terms of the officials and the, uh, uh, and the media and so on. Uh, this was uh, released for the first time ahead of Tokyo. So it's a sort of an 
dated edition of that more specific to, to Beijing. And it will be further updated as well. So it is a sort of a fluid evolving document. Uh, there's not a whole lot new in here that, that wasn't previously released at the um, uh, uh, press conferences by the IOC over the last few weeks. So there's probably going to uh, add a little bit more flesh on the bones uh, in the coming weeks as we build up to, to the games themselves. I think that the big things, as I said, weren't a particular surprise, but as long as athletes are vaccinated, double vaccinated, they can come straight in uh, to this, to the, effectively the bubble. They, they're calling it this closed loop management, but it's, you know, everyone calls it a bubble. It's a bubble. Uh, it's just easy, easier to, to, to refer, refer to that. But it's going to be a much tighter bubble than Tokyo had. And I think, again, that's expected. If you are not vaccinated, uh, you have to do 21 days of quarantine, which is standard for Beijing, as, as you and I know, having having been here for for. for the large majority of the pandemic, uh, anyone coming into the capital has to do 21 days. And so that restriction is still in place. But you have to imagine that that 99.9% of people are going to either be fully vaccinated or just not come. Uh, because the, the the three weeks quarantine for for most of these people is is pretty prohibitive. Uh, they're going to have to stay in the bubble. They're not going to get to leave. And, and if they do want to leave and see the rest of China and even see the rest of Beijing, downtown Beijing, they're going to have to do three weeks of quarantine just to be released back into the Chinese mainland. So again, no one's going to be, I was surprised to, to see that some of the, the skeleton uh, athletes were, were on the Great Wall. That won't be happening uh, next February for, for sure. It'll be, um, you know, the, they, they won't have that much leeway. Perhaps it was a special arranged trip and they cleared the area. Um, I don't know, but uh, good to see that they could get out. But again, it will be stricter next year. Yeah, and to me, I'm not sure I'd qualify this as a surprise, but I, you know, I just I don't know what to make of the transport issues that that were raised in the document. So, so as you know, in, in late 2019, the high speed rail between Beijing and Zhangjiakou opened, right? And and that that route used to take three hours or over three hours, and now it takes like 47 minutes. And I took it last year to ski at Taiwu, and it was amazing. And it looks. Like, let me read exactly what this says in the document in, in, in the playbook, so I don't get this wrong. It says the use of the high-speed rail is limited to Olympic, Paralympic family, international federations, media, and marketing partners. You know, it goes on, it goes on to explain that you can't drive your car there unless you have vehicle access and or parking permits. Like, what, what do you make of that? There's been suggestions that I've heard that there could be special trains laid on for for spectators kind of en masse. Um Again, we're still waiting for a lot of these details. Um, it, they have announced that there will be spectators, or uh, uh, as much as as much as they can. Um, now, it obviously is easier to have spectators at the outdoor snow events because because there's less of a risk of trans, uh, transmission than if you're in a closed indoor arena. So that's that's one thing. the The other thing I wanted to kind of highlight from the playbook actually that 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 to you and I probably is is normal but for people coming in from overseas and, and from certain western countries i think there might be a bit of an issue here it's all the stuff about data and privacy and you know when when we walk around beijing and you go into a mall or into a restaurant you you scan the health code and you have your wechat app on the phone and it registers your details so basically when there's when there's any outbreak they can track everyone who's been anywhere and you're basically you have a little monitoring device uh, via your phone and you can't get in anywhere without scanning this. So you can't get around the process. All the athletes are going to have to do this with their green code to come in and they're going to get checked every day and they're going to have to install this on their phone 14 days ahead of coming into China. Now, again, to you and I, just 
life in China, that that's sort of part of the bargain. If you don't want to do that, basically, you're not really going to be able to live in China. But with, you know, privacy concerns being a much bigger issue in, in other countries, I can see some people not really liking that at all. So is that going to mean people pull out because of, of that? Maybe just maybe buy a burner phone or something like that. I mean, it, it seems to us, it would seem an extreme reaction, but, but um, I know that different countries and different cultures kind of react to this very, very differently. So I'd be interested to see, because they've said, look, if you don't abide by this, you're out or you can be financially penalized. And it says this is a non-exhaustive list of sanctions. So I'm like, well, what else are they going to do? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like we said, it's version one of the playbook. So they, you know, there's not too much detail. But um, I can see some people uh, kind of digging into the details and thinking, hold on a second, what's going on here? Yeah, that's that's a great, great point. And and that Beijing 2022 app that everyone has to download, that's not available just yet. So nobody knows what it looks like. I, I, I suspect it'll look a lot like the health kit that we all use. Yeah, here, but. And, it, and it was just the line about, you know, who's going to access this data. And it says, you know, the Chinese government, the national government, the local government's authorities, Beijing 2022. Now, of course, they're going to access the data because, like, those are the people running the games that they need access to their data to, to successfully manage the pandemic. But the way the world is today and the geopolitical sensitivities, when people hear that the Chinese government's going to have my data, like that, that's that that becomes an emotive issue for for certain people, and they're like, okay, this is this is like a red flag. So that's again, hopefully, it doesn't cause an issue, but I can just see you know see some some storylines springing up around that topic. I had a chance to speak with an American journalist who's making the trip over to Beijing. We talked about what he thought about the playbook. Dan Wolken is a national columnist with USA Today Sports. He's been with the paper since 2012, mainly covering college football. He was at the Tokyo Olympics for the paper, writing, among other things, about the gold medal winning U.S. men's basketball team. He's in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's here to talk to us about IOC's just-released playbook, their game plan for how they're going to run the Olympics and the Paralympics. Dan Wolken, welcome to the China Sports Insider Podcast, and thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. No, glad to do it. Thanks, guys. So before we get into the specifics of Beijing's playbook, I, I want to ask you a little bit about Tokyo. Like, How challenging was it to cover the games while you were there? Well, it was different. It, this was uh, my fourth Olympics in Tokyo, and it was definitely not like the three before in any way, shape, or form. Now, listen, uh, everything is relative in life, and covering an Olympics is a privilege. It's an honor. It's one of the best things in my career, so I don't ever take that for granted. Um, so understand the conversation we're having is all within that context, right? But there's no doubt that the way it had to work for Tokyo to be able to host it during the pandemic, the way that the government and the people were going to accept what was happening, because as it's been well chronicled, the population uh, in Japan did not want this to happen. They basically tried to make it where the public was never going to interact with anyone who was involved with the Olympics, including the media. And for the first 14 days that we were all there, it was hard because Tokyo had set up an Olympics based largely on people using their wonderful public transport system. 
And so then all of a sudden COVID happens and they've got to shift this thing to kind of a pseudo bubble concept. And we're not allowed to use public transportation for 14 days. And so that part made it more difficult uh, to, to cover. Obviously when you're in the venues, there were distancing, masking and things that, you know, we're all used to by now. Um, but I, I thought the main difficulty was transportation, uh, especially for me covering basketball. The site, uh, the, the Saitama arena was way out in kind of a suburb of Tokyo. Um, so it was, you know, it was a journey every time you, you went somewhere. And also, I would say, you know, when you're covering an Olympics, typically you're used to doing a bunch of different things a day, sometimes, you know, two, three, four events a day that you couldn't do that in Tokyo because of, first of all, the transportation. Second of all, you had to make reservations in advance to go cover an event. And and so it, it was, you know, basically you were limited in what you could do. So, so Beijing's organizers had this huge advantage, right? So in that they got to see how Tokyo did their games and, and they could plan a few things a little differently. So, so you've read through uh, Beijing's most recent playbook. Does, does, did anything jump out as like a corrective, something that in hindsight to- Tokyo could have done but didn't do? Well, I, I think in reading what, what they're doing for Beijing, what they're trying to accomplish, at least how I read it, is facilitate maybe a little bit more ease and freedom within the bubble, but the bubble is is harder, if that makes any sense. Um, the bubble is going to be extremely separate from what's actually happening in the city of Beijing. So I, I guess that's the concept. Um, whether or not that's going to make it better, worse, easier, harder, I, I don't really know. Um, I guess we'll figure it out when we when we get there, but that is clearly to me what what they have have tried to do is is you know th- unlike Tokyo where after 14 days you could kind of go move around you could go out into the city you could go um, see things in real life and use public transportation you're not doing any of that in in Beijing it's it's all within the bubble in out. And, and, but once you're in, you're in and, you know, I guess they're maybe trying to make things a little bit easier from that perspective. Is, is USA Today sending you to Beijing? Like, is this going to be, is this going to be your first time to China if you come? Yes. Uh, as of today, um, we, I am part of the team that's, that's coming. Um, Great. you know, now one of the difficulties we're all sort of looking at and facing right now, and this is not just USA Today, this is all American journalists, is transportation into China. Yeah. Because there are no American carriers that are flying in and out of China right now. So uh, obviously being 100 days away, roughly, that's a bit of a concern, (laughs) a bit of a challenge. Like, how's that going to work out? Now, you know, there may be some movement on things over the next few weeks that sort that out. But as of right now, like you can't just log on to you know, Delta's website or whatever and get a flight to Beijing. Like that, that just doesn't exist. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so you can fly to China. You just there, there are none to Beijing, and that's and that's that's the issue, right? Because okay, it, right. You have to, you have to come through one of the two airports here, and as you said, like it's, it's super strict. Uh, like once you get to the airport, you have to go directly from the airport uh, using their transportation to the bubble, and then you're in the bubble, and then you're not leaving the bubble. So, so when like when do you plan on coming over? Well, it it, it would be the same as any other Olympics. Uh, that I've covered, which is, you know, typically you try to arrive uh, a few days before the opening ceremonies, you know, get yourself settled in and, you know, you have time to just acclimate to the time difference and all that stuff and go into the office. Cause USA today, we, we, you know, have a place in the media center where we work from and we yeah. get together and we plan and we, figure out, you know, who's covering what and when. Uh, so usually, you know, I, I don't know exactly what date that would be, but if the opening ceremony is Friday, which it usually is, we typically, or I typically would arrive on like Tuesday and right. then stay until the end, you know, leave on the day of the closing ceremony. Uh, right. Now, you know, in an, in a normal Olympics, a non COVID Olympics, uh, I, I have often, in these places, you know, traveled throughout or in inside the country in some way, or, you know, done some tourist things. Um, you know, in, in, I remember after Sochi, there were a bunch of us who you know flew up to Moscow and toured around in Moscow and, you know, before we went home. So that kind of thing is, is typical. I think, uh, when you're, you know, in a place that you're not getting to very often, uh, and I have not been to mainland China, uh, in, in, in my life. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a disappointment that, you know, you're not, I'm not going to actually get to see Beijing. I'm not going to actually get to, you know, go to Shanghai or wherever, uh, but that's just what we're dealing with right now. So yeah, you got to kind of just roll with it. Yeah. It's a bummer. It's too bad. Now, now a major part of the playbook is, is what that Olympic bubble is going to look like. They, they're not calling yeah. it a bubble They're They're calling it a closed loop. Um, right, right. But, you know, so, so if you've been fully vaccinated and this applies to athletes, staff, media, like you go directly from the airport into that closed loop. And, and once you're in the loop, you're, you're, you're there until you leave China. So, so if you're not fully vaccinated, then you're ha- you have to quarantine for three weeks. Do, do you think there's going to be any athletes or journalists from the U.S. or anywhere, I guess, uh, who might opt for the quarantine option? I, I don't see how that's possible, to be honest exactly, with you. Yeah. I, I just don't yeah. see how somebody is going to go to the lengths that is required. I mean, that's a long time for journalists. I I just don't see it. I mean, you know, you've got a a news organization who's paying for you to be there and I don't see anyone who's paying, you know, three weeks, not to mention just loss of productivity and other things you've got to do and all that stuff. To me, that's just a non starter, you know, for athletes, if you've got to be, in a, a hard quarantine for that length of time, I don't know how you're going to be in any sort of shape to compete. Um, you know, you, you, it, 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 it just sounds like a major, sorry to interrupt. It just sounds like this major, yeah. like disadvantage. Like you, while you're in quarantine, like all your competitors are, are training and doing whatever they're doing. That doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, to me, that would just be a waste of, of time to not, not just the time you're there, but like literally the, the four years that you've spent trying to prepare for this Olympics. So I don't see it happening. So so one of the takeaways from the playbook to me was was just how positive results are going to be treated. They they didn't define the term essential, 
But but they said that if you're in a role that isn't essential uh, and you test positive for COVID, that means you're either spending the next three weeks in a quarantine hotel or, or you're leaving China as soon as possible. And, and, I, and I suspect that, that most foreign journalists are, are just going to take the latter option. Um, so, so I'm sure that you're going to be taking every, all the precautions that you can. But, but when you talk about this with your team at USA Today, like, wh- how do you even plan for that? Like, what, what happens if, if one of you tests positive? Like, do you, do you have a contingency plan? Like, what, what, what happens? Yeah, I mean, listen, this is now just sort of kind of what we're dealing with, not just in the Olympic context, but, but everywhere, like earlier this year, I went on vacation in Portugal and, you know, you're sitting there thinking the whole time because you've got to take a COVID test before you get on a plane to come back to the United States. And you're sitting there thinking, you know, oh my God, what if I'm, you know, even though I'm vaccinated, like what if it's, I I somehow pop a positive test, I'm going to be sitting here in, in some hotel for two weeks. Like that's just what it is now. Right. So, so to me, this isn't just an Olympics thing. It's just like, if you're traveling around the world, you have to sort of understand that this is baked into the risk that, that you're taking. And it's this, it was the same thing in Tokyo. Like, I don't think anybody landed in Tokyo with the idea that, uh, they wanted to test positive and, and sit in a hotel room for two weeks before they could come home. So we talked about it before Tokyo a little bit, but it's just, you're going, you're working, you're taking all the precautions. If you happen to test positive, then you just do what they tell you to do. Now, look, I will say that the positive rate in Tokyo was extremely low, you know, and I think that's one of the actual I think successes of what they pulled off in Tokyo is very few positive tests. And and I was literally being tested every day. You know, people, people were, I don't know what the test exactly is, is going to be like in, in Beijing, but it, it was a spit test in, in Tokyo. I spit into a tube. I dropped it off every day. They don't tell you if you're positive or negative. They, they just tell you if you're positive. So, you know, I never got that email or phone call and, and it was fine. And I assume it's going to be the same in Beijing. And, you know, if, if someone happens to be extremely unlucky to test positive over there, then you just deal with the consequences. Yeah. Is, was there anything in the playbook that surprised you? That was like, whoa, that's that's just something that I did, I did not expect at all. No, I mean, I, I think, especially for, for myself, who's been through the Tokyo experience, and, and also there was a lot of conversation in Tokyo about what Beijing was going to look like, you know, and and what um, what kind of restrictions were going to be in place. So it, nothing really surprised me. Um, I, I think what they're doing is trying to create an atmosphere where it's just a different world than, than the one that, you know, however many million people live in Beijing are, are, are operating in. And that's fine. Like this yeah. is until this thing is over to whatever extent it's going to be over. Like, if you're going to have a big international worldwide event where you've got, you know, tens of thousands of people coming into your, your country, you know, especially a place like China that is, is extremely aggressive about COVID countermeasures, then yeah. this is yeah. exactly what, what you're going to have. 
Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see. I mean, we've been living in in this. It feels like I've been living in this bubble for like 21 months. So I'm really interested in seeing how the rest of the world is going to experience this. Like this is one of the most fascinating things for me um, and one of the biggest storylines for me coming in uh, to the Olympics. Yeah, the other part of it, too, at least from my perspective, and I felt this in Tokyo as well, is that. When you're there covering an Olympics, it is all about the work. It is, you know, I'm putting in and my colleagues are putting in 15-hour days. You don't have time to worry so much or deal with, you know, whatever restrictions. Um, Yeah, people might complain a little bit about, about certain things. But at the end of the day, we have so much work to do. To cover the games, and you know, I imagine it's going to be the same in Beijing because we're we're sending a smaller staff than we normally send, um, and I'm sure that's going to be likewise for all the American media companies. And um, you're, you're just going like you wake up in the morning, you get where you need to get to cover an event, you cover the next one, you cover the next one, you eat when you have a chance, and you go to bed. Like that is covering an Olympics, and and it's long days, it's exhausting. And the restrictions are, honestly, it didn't really bother me that much in Tokyo, other than just the public transportation thing. And from what it sounds like in the playbook, at least in Beijing, they are trying to streamline the transportation to the to the best they can. Um, yeah. And and it's it's going to be a little different setup than, than what you had in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean the the the, the reality is they built this gleaming, amazing new high speed rail. That takes you from Beijing to uh, uh, Ko, which is where a lot of the skiing events are going to be held, right? right. Um, I, I was on that train last year to go skiing, and it's, it's amazing. It, this three-hour yeah, ride before it was is now like 45 minutes. We can't. I mean, only Olympic people, like only journalists will be able to take this. Like other people yeah. just can't take it. It's like, okay, well, that's <laughs> there you go. But again, as you say, like that's just the way it's, it's, it has to be to be streamlined. It, it, it makes sense. Um, so just one more question for you, though. In terms of action on the field, like what are some of the storylines that you're you're interested in that you're going to be following? <laughs> well, you know that's that's a great question, and and I'm not my brain is not really in in Winter Olympics mode yet because I am in I'm in the height of uh, what is what is my season, which is the college football season in the U.S. and uh, for the next month or so, that that's kind of going to be be my focus. And then you know once once I once I get into December. And, and things kind of die down a little bit, I'll, I'll dive more into the Olympic stuff. Um, you know, I, I am, uh, at least in previous Olympics and, and what I've done before, um, I'm kind of a little bit of a rover. You know, we have a wonderful, experienced staff of people uh, with, with my colleagues who, who you know, uh, are, are among the, the, most, the most accomplished journalists in the world when it comes to things like skiing, and, and ice, uh, uh, you know, the, the figure skating and, uh, those sports. So I, I sort of cover a little bit of the rest. Um, you know, I'll be doing probably some, some sliding and from what it sounds like, uh, the people who have seen and practiced on that sliding track say it's phenomenal. Um, so that'll be interesting to see just kind of what the speeds are and, you know, how, how that gets navigated. And, and also, you know, that's a sport where, there's there's a lot of danger and you know you always sort of look at that when when they go to this place for the first time you know are there trouble spots are there issues so that's one thing you always look at in, in sliding you know and then the return of of NHL players to the to the hockey tournament i think is going to be very 
uh, interesting for for myself and, yeah. and others because it was very strange in in uh, Korea to see the teams that were put out there by some really strong hockey countries um, just you know just bizarre you know basically yeah. you know guys who you know just sort of these lunch pail minor league guys who are out there playing for for medals. And of course, Russia had a lot of their top players who were not in the NHL that season. So uh, it'll be really phenomenal, I think, to, to to get that group of of people back. Now, I don't know how much interest there is in hockey in in China uh, generally, or if this is sort of going to be a new thing, you know, that they're going to have to get used to. Well, this is a major storyline here in yeah. that um, you know the Chinese men's national team is is a mess, and and they're in the same division. Are they in the same group as the USA, Canada, and, and Germany? Um, tough group. Tough group. <laughs> tough group. And and they actually might be kicked out of the tournament uh, before it starts. Uh, there's some rumblings about that. So, you know, we're, we're definitely watching that. Dan Woken is a national columnist with USA Today Sports. He joined us from Atlanta. Dan, I really appreciate your time. Good luck with the rest of the college football season. And, and let us know when you're in town. I'd love to hear from you um, to, and, and just hear how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll try to do that, and uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we 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 won't be able to to get together for that beer. I'm sure you'd 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 love to show uh, visiting journalists uh, your city, but uh, yeah, maybe next time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Okay, that was Dan Wilkin. Mark, what did you think? I think the one thing that 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 struck a chord with with me actually. I covered the, the Beijing Olympics. That's why I initially came to China and then also went to Vancouver and London. So uh, 2008, 2010 and, and 2012. And it is an absolutely crazy time. It's just nonstop from one story to the next. And you basically don't really sleep. <laughs> and Dan kind of alluded to that. It was like, you're just in the mode and, you know, and then you crash at the end and everyone sort of crashes together and, and it's fine. And you, you maybe kind of have a, a little bit of a drag kind of as you get into the second week of the Olympics, but it's, it's an event like no other. And to hear him talk about Tokyo, uh, you know, with the COVID, with the COVID pressures on top of everything else, I think was, was very interesting. It's, I think, what I'm looking forward to seeing is the rest of the world is basically ready to move on with COVID. And you can see that in the way that they're, they're dealing with things. Whereas China is, is full steam ahead still on, on COVID zero, certainly through the end of the, certainly through the, the, the games, what happens later in 2022 remains to be seen. But I, I just, I hope that COVID doesn't become too much of a story of these Olympics with the journalists saying about the restrictions and all that sort of stuff. And, and I hope that we can focus kind of more on the sports because it was already a big thing in Tokyo. And if it's going to be several levels more restrictive in Beijing, you know, the worry is that, that, that everyone's covering that and, and, and not the actual <laughs> Olympics. So we'll see. Yeah, his headspace isn't exactly focused on the Olympics just yet. You know, it's interesting to think about what the focus of visiting journalists um, are going to be. It, it, I think also it will depend on on who gets accreditation and who actually comes. Because if you're a sports journalist, you want to cover the sports stories. If you're not a sports journalist, you don't particularly get. You don't. There aren't too many big names. You know, there's people like Sean White, and there, there are some big names. There's the, of course the NHL players, but they're not quite as big as the Dream Team and and the you know the the 100 meter sprinters uh, at a Summer Olympics. And so does that mean these other journalists, kind of non-sports specific journalists who are perfectly entitled to, to cover an Olympics, 
they're stuck in the bubble, but they're covering, you know, more political issues. Is that, you know, what is the tone of the coverage going to be, particularly as people can't get out and about in China? Um, I don't know if that means that there's nothing to cover or that they'll kind of make the the point about the fact that they're stuck in this bubble and, and everything else that's going on. So, again, we kind of focus on the sports here, but I think it's important to, to at least acknowledge that there's that there's so many other storylines about China that, that that many of our listeners will be familiar with. Um, and how how are they going to be woven into the Olympic storyline or not, you know, as the case may be? Something we've talked about a lot, and a lot of that is because you're the one who actually broke the story, is the status of the Chinese men's ice hockey team. So just as a refresher for anyone who's been, who has not been following the story, wh- why are we spending so much time with the Chinese men's ice hockey team? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question if, uh, if, people, uh, if people haven't really followed the story. Because uh, China, you, you might guess that, 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 that the Chinese men's ice hockey team is not that great. Here's the thing. They were given a berth in 2018. Uh, they don't automatically qualify uh, as hosts. A lot of people think they do, but they don't. And the, the International Ice Hockey Federation gave them uh, a position in the 12-team tournament uh, three years ago. Now, the quirk of fate with the draw being such as it, as it is, is that they are in a group with Canada, the best team in the world, the Americans, who are also very, very good, and Germany, who are no slouches. And in fact, when the NHL players weren't playing in Korea four years ago, they got the silver medal. So they have some very, very good players as well. So the Chinese team, and there's been different iterations of who exactly is going to play for the Chinese team, but whoever it is, is not nearly good enough really to compete with, with with these NHL superstars. The WIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, they have a new president. His name is Luke Tardif. And, and he, he gave a press conference in September. Here he is talking about his priorities. Um, here's a clip. But the new challenge is, uh, uh, first of all, uh, we've, we're going to have uh, someone in chief of the develop, development because that's one of our priority. And after that, bring ice hockey all over the world and uh, the ice hockey in China it will be really important but uh, what I don't want is after the Olympic game the Pyeongchang and after the Olympic game the China we I hope we not that's not going down we have to surf on that keep the momentum and try to push a little bit further uh, the ice hockey in Asia because there is a good spot of uh, progression and uh, and we have to work on this uh, continent a couple of days after that he gave an interview to agence france press um, what they reported was china faced possible exclusion from the ice hockey tournament at next year's beijing winter olympics in spite of being hosts because of their quote insufficient sporting standard and then they quote uh, luke tardif watching a team being beaten 15 to 0 is not good for anyone not for china or for ice hockey. Now, in recent days, the story's gone really mainstream. Um, an article written by Tariq Panja in the New York Times um, had the headline, China's hockey team is so bad, it might be dropped from the Olympics. Mark, what, what's the best solution here? This is probably worth a, a, a whole entire podcast. The best solution the best solution is is never to have got to this point. Um, I know that, that doesn't really answer the question. I, I think it would be desperately unfair to kick China out with just three months to go, you know, they they have kind of got their act together. They've got a team of of uh, of North American 
uh, ethnically Chinese players, uh, by and large, who are now playing in the Russian Hockey League in the KHL. So that, uh, as far as we can tell, that is the makeup of Team China. They're trying their best. They're, like I said, they're, they're not nearly competitive enough to compete with, with the U.S. and Canada. Uh, but the it's it's the the double IHF, you know, Tardif is the new guy in. So this is why he kind of has some power. He can clean house and say, this wasn't my decision. This was the previous regime. So I'm going to kick him out this late stage and bring Norway in. Norway would stand to, to gain if China is kicked out. Now, Norway is one of the top winter powers. Some predictions say they're going to top the medal table in Beijing. And so, of course... If you're if you're head of the Ice Hockey Federation, you want good relations with Norway, right? You would think. So that doesn't particularly bode well for China. There's a couple of things at play. There's been a lot of discussion about these these test events or games that were supposed to have happened in, in Beijing or in China. As far as I can make out, these haven't happened. And it was going to be a farce anyway, because who was playing in these games when Team China is, is in Russia training? So that was kind of a, a bit of a joke. If China is going to be kicked out, and, and there, there are these still these rumors flying around, but no one really seems to know what's going on, then the IIHF could say, look, all these players you've recruited over the last uh, few months for China aren't eligible to play, therefore your team is is clearly not good enough. They, if they go back to the, the squad of, of Chinese youngsters, then we're looking at we're looking at really, really, really bad score lines. So you know, it's it's a mess. There's no there's no best case scenario because if China gets kicked out, that's huge embarrassment. And if China loses on home ice, that's also huge embarrassment. So it's kind of a lose lose at this point. That's our show for this week. Mark, what is coming up in the next few weeks? Well, of course, the focus is going to stay on the Olympics uh, with just a, a few months to the final countdown. But we'll also uh, we'll also branch out. I was speaking to uh, Stefan Marbury, who's now coaching in the, the the CBA. He's agreed to come on the show when he gets a break after the first third of his season. He's coaching uh, here in China at the moment, former uh, NBA All-Star. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the Chinese soccer team. They kind of lurch from, from, from unfortunately, from one crisis to another. Uh, they are still alive in their in their desperate hopes to qualify for the the World Cup in Qatar next year that's a very very long uh, big long shot but but they're you know they'll still have some games so when they they're back playing again we can uh, discuss then and, and and everything in between so you know send in what you want to hear about and we'll uh, and we'll we'll discuss it well where can people find you well, the easiest thing is probably Twitter, Dryer China. That's D R E Y E R China uh, on Twitter, and uh, ChinaSportsInsider.com is is the website that I run uh, when I have time in amongst all these <laughs> other projects. So uh, uh, it's uh, kind of been a busy period. Uh, so uh, that that's, uh, keeps life interesting, and obviously lots going on. And you can find me on Twitter at Haigbalian. That's H-A-I-G-B-A-L-I-A-N. And let us know, as Mark said, let us know what you think about the show and what you want to hear. Uh, Thanks again to Dan Woken. And thank you for listening. We will be back next week. 